0: Hey there, friends. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me as always. And today we have a fantastic interview with a fantastic guest, one I'm happy to know as a friend. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, I want to introduce you all to a brand new out there keto product that you probably haven't heard about yet because it just launched and i have to say i get offered a lot of keto products out there a lot are sent to my house for me to test and all this stuff and very few actually make it through to me telling you about them because quite honestly i don't agree with a lot of what's out there i don't love the use of sugar alcohols and everything and making things super duper duper sweet that's not really my goal and Teaching people about keto for them to eat a bunch of fake sweet things. So, you know, that's one of the things to consider. And it's just, I'm pretty picky about what kinds of ingredients go into the foods that I eat. And I promote a real food diet, I live a real food lifestyle myself, and it's hard because I think you should just eat some food most of the time, right? However, the new Ample Meal Replacement Shakes ketogenic style came out, they introduced themselves to me, I tested their products. And they are great. I think that they are a great thing for a lot of us keto for womeners to at least have in our arsenal when we need something quick, when we're traveling, we're on the go, we're at soccer games and errands and grocery stores and all that stuff. And you need some food, but either didn't prepare, don't want to prepare, or just like having a shake around. So, Ample shakes are a full meal replacement shake and the only keto meal replacement shake. And the best thing that I like about them is they haven't taken a meal replacement shake and put a bunch of random ingredients that we don't know what it is. They didn't do that. These ingredients are real food. There are lots of different types of fat making up 70% of the calories as fat and healthy fats that we need, including MCT oil, which we know everyone's a big fan of in the keto community. But they also contain only 6 grams of net carbs. They have 40 billion CFUs of probiotics and four different kinds of fiber, which are those prebiotics. So they actually have taken the time to think about your gut health with all of this. They've added in magnesium and potassium, which again, something that we know as ketoers, really important to maintain that electrolyte imbalance for possible keto flu or just to really feel our best. I think that's one of the biggest things that helps us feel really good is continuing on with supplementing those electrolytes, and they've done that in this shake, and it tastes good. That's the crazy thing. It actually tastes really good. It's not super sweet, and I'm someone that has a very sensitive sweet flavor, and it is not sweet, but it's almost like having a melted vanilla ice cream, but not sweet ice cream if that makes sense. (laughs) So really, as you can see, I'm a big fan of theirs. I've been drinking them They are great to have along. I actually like to have them kind of mid-afternoon if I ever have either this little like hankering to eat something, but I'm not super hungry or I have a sweet tooth or something. If you just have a few sips, which is what I do kind of midday, it's very satisfying. It satisfies that sweet tooth, but then also you know providing the fat that we want as part of a ketogenic diet and keeping me satisfied until dinner time. So it's kind of been almost a snack replacement for me instead of a meal replacement. And that's another cool thing is that when you shake it up and mix it together, you can put it back into your refrigerator for several days and it will stay fresh. So that's really nice too. Anyway, enough about them. I just wanted to make sure I introduced you appropriately and they are partnering with the Keto for Women show, which is super great, which means you all get a discount. So right now, if you go to amplemeals.com and use the coupon code KETO4, the number four, women, 15, you get 15% off your order. That's amplemeals, A-M-P-L-E, meals.com. Remember to select the ketogenic option because they have other meal replacements too. The ketogenic option, if you want that, which I think you all do, keto, number four, women, 15, and get 15% off your order. All right, let's move into talking about today's guest. I cannot wait for you all to hear this episode. This woman is someone I actually met at the Low Carb Universe Conference. She was the first speaker and I was immediately enthralled and I took a ton of notes and just really loved the way that she explains things and puts things into a way that we all can understand, especially as it relates to cholesterol and insulin and diabetes, types of fats And all of those topics are what we're talking about today, and they will answer so many of your questions, especially as it relates to like, should I be eating this much saturated fat? Do I need to worry about my higher cholesterol? These questions that I get all the time, she obviously does too. And so we're going to answer those for you and really answer them in a way that makes a ton of sense. So here we go, Dr. Trudy Deacon, she is the chief executive of a registered charity specializing in the research, development, implementation, and audit of structured education for the public and healthcare professionals internationally. Trudy's first degree was in nutrition and dietetics, followed by a teaching qualification and then a doctorate in diabetes in 2004. She's the founder of Expert Health and the author of the portfolio of expert programs and has trained over 1,000 healthcare professionals to become expert educators, which has permitted the delivery of structured education to over 200,000 people at risk or diagnosed with diabetes. Trudy has published books including the Expert Health Diabetes Handbook, Expert Health Insulin Handbook, and Eat Fat, Step-by-Step Guide to low Carb Living book. I'm so excited for you all to meet Trudy. Let's go chat with her. Before we get going with the show, let's chat about the sponsor of this episode of the Keto for Women show, Health IQ. Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and healthy eaters get lower rates on their life insurance. Health IQ can save their customers up to 33% because they have found scientific proof showing physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. Like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. I've partnered with Health IQ because I'm a huge fan of their philosophy on recognizing those that take their health seriously, like us keto for womeners, and rewarding us for doing so by saving us money on our life insurance rates. Head to healthiq.com/keto to see if you qualify and to support the show. There, you will take a quick lifestyle quiz which will determine your potential savings. That's Health iq.com slash keto to learn more. Hi, Trudy. Thank you so much for coming on Keto for Women today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. I think Most people probably already know this, but just so we can get the word out there, we met at the Low Carb Universe Conference back when I was in Mallorca, Spain for that, and it was fabulous. And I just, your talk really stuck out for me because you do such a good job at explaining things so basically, you know, just really putting it out there in a way that anyone and everyone can understand what's going on with their body, which I love. So I'm like, I got to get her on the podcast.
1: (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thanks for inviting me. What we've found over the
0: years is that people understand things. They're so much more motivated to make the lifestyle change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just have to understand it. You have to know what your doctor is talking about, what's going on in your body from another perspective sometimes. And I love that so much. So why don't you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what you do, how you got to doing what you do, that kind of thing.
1: Okay, no problem. Well, my life as a healthcare professional started in 1993 when I trained as a dietitian. So I qualified as a registered dietitian in 1993 and started working in the National Health Service in the UK. And I'd always really been interested in diabetes, obesity, heart disease. And so there's so much prevention work that you can do in this area. And so I specialised almost immediately in diabetes. The patients, they used to come along and see the consultant, the dietitian, the nurse, the podiatrist. And it was a bit like a conveyor belt. And I recognised that people really didn't understand what carbohydrates were and what affected their blood glucose levels and insulin levels. And I realised that people needed the education to understand so I held all of focus groups of people to ask them what information they needed and how they wanted that delivering. And the message I got loud and clear is that they didn't want to come into a clinic and just be talked at and provided with a leaflet and sent away. They wanted to understand how their bodies worked. So I started to develop group education sessions and evaluated them and eventually put a week, together a six-week program And after three years, managed to get the funding to evaluate it with a randomised control trial. And that was published in Diabetic Medicine, a UK peer-reviewed journal, back in 2006. And showed that the people who had gone through the education did so much better, not just immediately, but even 14 months afterwards. And so I left the NHS in 2008 and set up a charity, and now we deliver to the whole of the UK this education package. So we deliver to, I think, 102 NHS organisations. And so, depending where people live, if they're lucky enough, they can attend the, the package of education and learn about their health and how to you know, lose weight and reduce the diabetes risk. Or if they have diabetes, to,
0: to manage their diabetes better through the education package. So love my work, love my job. Yeah. And I was able to come home with one of your books about insulin and it was so good, like just the way it's put together and having, you know, some of the charts and graphs and pictures and everything to go with it. It's just such a great way to really educate people on what's going on with them. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's start with diabetes. When we just kind of basically think about diabetes happening or even not getting all the way to diabetes, but working up to and maybe having insulin resistance or other blood sugar responses, what's actually happening? Okay, so are we kind of talking about pre-diabetes here? Or yeah, just kind of how those yeah, changes yeah. What happen when we, start, when we go from healthy to all of a sudden our blood sugar is not doing so hot.
1: Well, we're starting to recognize now that the symptoms of diabetes can happen for many, many decades before people are diagnosed. People are diagnosed when the blood glucose levels start to rise too high. But what we recognize now is the insulin and the insulin resistance is the starting point So somebody who is very insulin sensitive can eat carbohydrate and the pancreas produces a hormone called insulin. And if someone is insulin sensitive, they'll eat their carbohydrate and produce just the right amount of insulin to help to clear that glucose from the blood and get it into the cells where it can be converted into energy. And so they don't have a problem and they don't put weight on and they control their blood glucose levels and their blood pressure and waist circumference and lipid values, you know, the cholesterol levels in their blood are all okay. So there's no problem there. But what seems to develop over the period of time in some individuals is that they start to produce too much insulin for the amount of carbohydrate they're eating. And we call this hyperinsulinemia high insulin levels and what that can do is that repeated exposure to the insulin can cause insulin resistance and what we mean by insulin resistance is that the insulin doesn't work properly it no longer has the same ability to clear that glucose from the blood and allow it to enter the cells where it can be converted into energy So people can start to feel quite lethargic and tired. And when people feel quite tired and lethargic, what do they do? They snack more. And so when people snack, do they eat real food and protein um, and healthy fats? No, people tend to snack on the carbohydrates. So that makes the problem worse because when people snack, then start snacking on carbohydrates, they produce yet more insulin and the Extra insulin further makes the insulin resistance even worse, and so it becomes a repetitive problem. And what we do know about insulin is what we call it's a anabolic or a weight-promoting hormone. So when people have high insulin levels, they're more likely to store energy as fat, so they can put on weight, especially around their waist. It can increase there. So when people have got high insulin levels in their blood. It can cause people to retain sodium, and that can cause an increase in blood pressure. And it can affect their triglyceride levels, which is like the fats in their blood as well. And it can also cause the extra glucose to be converted to fat in the liver, causing fatty liver. So people can start to develop the symptoms of the metabolic syndrome, you know, kind of decades before the blood glucose levels rise too high, and they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes.
0: And it happens so quickly, and often a lot of people don't know that it's happening, which is really hard, and like you said, it kind of spirals slowly out of control, or maybe sometimes not so slowly, maybe sometimes quickly. So what I want to talk about today, because we have a really educated group of women that listen to this show, And I think most women know the basics about why this could happen. So you eat a high-carbohydrate diet, and this can definitely happen. But there are some other things that I don't think many people know as to what can contribute to these elevated insulin levels or this imbalanced blood sugar. So can we talk about those maybe not-so-obvious ones?
1: Yes, yes. So, I mean, carbohydrates are the main stimulator of the insulin. But, you know, we need to consider holistically the whole body. And so we know that when people are stressed, then they release more of the stress hormones like cortisol. And that leads to people releasing glucose from their liver, which then increases the insulin levels. People who don't sleep well have also increased stress hormones in their body, which causes insulin levels to rise. And we're starting to know much, much more about the gut microbiota and how the foods that we eat can affect both the beneficial uh, bacteria and the diversity of the beneficial bacteria in the gut, as well as the bad bacteria. And if the foods we eat are not balanced, then we can start developing of the bad bacteria in the gut, which can cause inflammation and and insulin levels to rise as well. So, you know, it's not just the carbohydrate intake, it's the whole lifestyle factors that can affect the insulin levels.
0: And one of the things that you brought up in your talk that I just loved, and I wrote it down in my notes because I wanted to make sure that I talked to you about it later was how calorie restriction or kind of this yo-yo dieting effect, how that actually all can lead to this same issue as well over the course of, you know, some years, probably I would assume. But a lot of women that are listening are coming from a past of dieting and trying this diet and that diet and all over. What can I do to be on this chronic dieting pattern? And now they may be dealing, and I see this in my practice all the time, women who technically have quote unquote been eating healthy for a really long time, and yet their blood sugars are out of control. And I do believe that it's because of this pattern of the constant dieting. So that's something that you've seen too.
1: Oh, definitely. Yes. Yes. And I think people get very despondent when they try to follow the typical kind of, you know, eat less, move more guidelines that the government give out. And so they've tried and tried and tried to lose weight for years by following the low fat guidance and the the kind of the strap line of oh, all you need to do is eat less and move more. And they just haven't got anywhere. And you've heard the saying, diets make you fat. Well, they absolutely do. Because one thing that has been overlooked is that calories in and calories out are linked. So what happens when someone goes on a reduced calorie diet? For example, if an average woman requires around 2,000 calories a day, and they decide that they're going to put themselves on a energy or a low calorie diet, They might drop their calorie intake to 1500 calories and they might have that 500 energy deficit in a day. But what they don't realize is that because calories in, calories that people eat are linked with the calories out, the calories that they burn, is that over a period of time, the calories out, so the calories that they burn will also drop. So, you know, initially in the first few weeks when they drop their calories down to 1,500 calories a day, yes, they will lose weight and they'll think, oh, brilliant, you know, this diet is really working for me, I'm losing weight. But then all of a sudden their weight loss will plateau and they'll say, well, what am I doing wrong? I'm I'm doing everything the same and why have I stopped losing weight? And what they don't realize is that their basal metabolic rate, what we call the b MR, basal metabolic rate, has dropped. And rather than them burning 2000 calories a day, their metabolic rate has dropped. So they're only burning 1500 calories a day. So that's why the weight has plateaued. And so some people might say, okay, then I will further reduce my calories. So they might drop their calories down to, say, a thousand calories a day. And the weight loss will continue for a short period of time. But then their metabolic rate, will also drop down to level out at the amount of calories because our bodies are very, very good at adapting. And so in a matter of time, the willpower will go because people are often only motivated if they're seeing results. If the weight loss has plateaued, they stop seeing the results and they start missing their favorite foods, they may be feeling tired, And so they might introduce some of their favourite foods back into their diet. And so what happens? They start gaining the weight that they've lost. And quite often people will overshoot. You know, quite often you see it all happen all the time. They not only regain all the weight that they have lost, but they overshoot. And so after a period of dieting, people can often weigh more than they did do when they first started dieting in the first place. And how do they feel then? What's their willpower? Very, very low. And they believe it's their fault because they didn't try hard enough or they broke their diet. And so after a few more months, they'll go, oh, okay, then I failed last time, but I'll try again. Do they try anything different? Often not. They try to do exactly what they did before and they get the same results that they did before. So what we need to do is to educate people to lose the weight without damaging their metabolism, without reducing their basal metabolic rate. So that's the real knack in losing fat and keeping it off.
0: So I know now everyone's asking, what is that magical way? How do you lose weight and not damage your metabolism? I think I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you.
1: Yeah, so it's quite simple, really. It's allowing ourselves to access our fat stores. So, even a lean individual, lean woman with only say 20% fat, has got probably over a thousand, hundred thousand calories of fat stored in their body. And it's a way, so that's a lean individual, but if people are carrying extra weight, The extra weight is in the form of fat. So they will have much more than 100,000 calories of energy stored in their body that they should be able to use and utilize as an energy source. And so the great knack, you know, the great thing about losing weight and keeping off is allowing your body to access your own fat stores. And how do we do that? It's back to our discussion around the insulin. When insulin levels are high, the body is in fat storage mode. So the body is going to store any calories that the person consumes. So the only way to access the fat stores is to get the insulin levels Right down. So then it's almost like taking the padlock off your own fridge, your own internal fridge, if, um, and letting yourself burn your own calories. An example I often use is that if you go out shopping and you buy the whole family food, you go to the food store and you buy the food for the week, and you come back and you put it in the refrigerator, then the food is there for the family to eat. But if you went and put a padlock on that refrigerator, the family would go hungry because the food is there, the energy is there, but the family cannot access it. And that's what it's like an individual when they've got high insulin levels. They've got thousands upon thousands of calories stored in their body that they should be able to use, but if their insulin levels are high, then their body is in fat storage mode and they cannot use those calories. So then they often feel tired because they're not able to access their stored calories. But also they feel hungry because they haven't got the energy in their body to use. And so a lot of people who need to lose weight often say to me, but I feel tired and hungry all the time. And that tells me that they must have high insulin levels. So then we talk about how they can get their insulin levels down. And one way, as as we've already talked about, is the low-carbohydrate diet. Another way is by doing the fasting, the intermittent fasting. So there's many ways that people can drive down their insulin levels. If the insulin levels remain low, it unlocks the padlock to people's internal energy source and they can start utilizing and burning their stored fat in their body and when they do that they no longer feel hungry they no longer feel tired and they start seeing the pounds drop from their body weight
0: yeah and so this is when naturally it sounds like in your practice you start talking to them about a low carb diet possibly ketogenic diet. And it makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. And this is also when you possibly talk to them about starting an intermittent fasting protocol too, it sounds like. And I do remember you saying, and I think this is a really important topic to discuss too, that intermittent fasting, yes, will probably reduce your calories on those days if you decide to intermittent fast for some people, but that does not have the same metabolic damage effect that just an overall calorie-restricted diet has, correct? It's absolutely
1: different because if people do a a reduced calorie diet, then they tend to have three meals a day with snacks in between and eating carbohydrate, so their insulin levels remain high. And so they are not utilizing their fat stores, and so that's what reduces their metabolism. Turning that around, if people do some level of carbohydrate restriction and don't eat as frequently, that drives the insulin levels down. So then they can utilize their own fat stores. The body then doesn't need to go into starvation mode because the body is receiving calories. Then people might be fasting, but the calories are coming from people's fat stores. So then the body doesn't have to panic and go into starvation mode and reduce the metabolic rate because the body is being fed not through the person putting food in their mouth, but by them you know, using their fat stores as an energy source.
0: I love it. That makes so much sense to me for sure. Okay. So I want to switch the topics a little bit because this is also something that I really want to try to explain as best as we can on this show. And that is that of cholesterol. And it kind of ties in because I'm assuming in your practice, when patients come in and you tell them that they're going to be on this high-fat diet, they're going to restrict their calories a little bit, then they get concerned because their other doctors haven't told them that. And it's scary because we know about cholesterol and we've heard so much about cholesterol and how dietary fat can cause these elevations in cholesterol and it's a, this becomes this really scary thing for people that really shouldn't be. And I loved the way that you can explain it and kind of dumb it down, we'll say, for all of us. So let's talk about that subject. Now, the ones that we know are total cholesterol and then the HDL, which is considered the good, quote unquote, cholesterol, and the LDL, which is considered the bad, quote unquote, cholesterol. So what are these and are they actually good and bad? Yes, it's such an interesting topic, this, and there's so much
1: confusion around it. The number one take-home message is there's only one type of cholesterol. And cholesterol is absolutely essential for life. We need it for five things. We need it for brain function. We need every single cell in the body needs cholesterol in the cell wall. Um, so the cells wouldn't live without cholesterol. We need it to make vitamin D. So, you know, there's a huge kind of, certainly in the UK, there's a huge concern about vitamin D deficiency. But we can't make vitamin D in the body without cholesterol. We need it for all the sex hormones. So we won't be able to reproduce without cholesterol. And also, finally, the fifth reason is that we won't be able to digest food and certainly digest fats without cholesterol because we need cholesterol to make the bile acids. So cholesterol is essential to life. So That's the first point. Now, because um, cholesterol is, is a lipid, then it doesn't mix with water. And our blood is water-based. And so because uh, cholesterol is also essential, it needs to be transported in the blood to where it's needed in the body. And because it doesn't mix with the blood, it needs to be transported And so when we talk about the cholesterol transporters, that's where the LDL and the HDL comes in. So the LDL transports the cholesterol to where it's needed in the body. And the HDL is a transporter that mops up the excess cholesterol that's not required and takes it back to the liver where it can be repackaged and reused. So we have a very efficient system running our body. And so the myth that cholesterol is harmful for us comes from the fact that when they've done autopsies and they've seen people have had a heart attack and they see the fatty streaks in the arteries, and this is cholesterol deposits, so cholesterol has been blamed for the heart attack, but really the cholesterol is just an innocent passenger in the transporter. And so the problem lies in the transporter not in the cholesterol. So the LDL is what we said is the transporter that transports the cholesterol to where it's needed in the body. Now, the LDL should be large and fluffy, a bit like a truck. It should be big enough to carry the load. The problem happens when these LDLs shrink and become small and dense. So we use an analogy of a motorway. So, if you imagine our blood vessels around our body is a motorway system, or do you call them highways? Yes. Highway system, yes. yeah. If at, you know, 2 a.m., you may only have a handful of trucks on the highway, so there's a low risk of collision. But at 8 a.m., the truckers are sleeping, but there is a multitude of small cars on the highway. And therefore, there is a much greater risk of collision. And so if you think about the LDLs in this same context, that we want our LDLs to be large enough to carry the load so we don't need too many of them. And then they're less likely to collide, become damaged and drop the load. But what causes our LDL to shrink is when people eat too many carbohydrates. When people eat too many carbohydrates, then that increases another lipid in the blood called triglycerides. And when the triglyceride levels in the blood get too high, then that process can cause the LDL to shrink and become what we call the LDL, the small dense LDL. And they're very, very easily damaged then. And when they get damaged, they drop the load. What is the load? The load is the cholesterol. So it's just the innocent passenger in the transporter. Does that all make sense?
0: Yeah. And when you had your talk, you had it all on this picture, and and you can visualize it for our listeners. You can visualize that highway and how it makes sense that when there are a low amount, there's very low risk. And then as it becomes more towards rush hour, there's going to be a much greater risk. So that's what really a good way to look at it. So when we're going to our doctors here and they're telling us that our cholesterol is too high, we may need to be on a statin or we need to really watch out for these numbers. And this is kind of the ideal ranges. Is that actually all true? And what should we actually be looking for to know if we are at risk for heart disease?
1: The total cholesterol level is meaningless because that doesn't really tell you anything. So just people focusing on their blood total cholesterol level, that doesn't actually tell people if they're high risk or not. And in fact, some studies have shown that the higher the cholesterol level, the longer people live. So it's more of a concern if people's total cholesterol level starts reducing When they re-evaluated one clinical trial, they found that for every, now what was it, there was for every 0.7 reduction, and that's UK units, in total cholesterol level, there was a 22% increased risk of, of dying of total mortality. So, you know, the total cholesterol level is not a concern. The ratio that we're using a lot nowadays is the triglyceride to HDL ratio. So we said that triglyceride is the amount of fat in the blood. Now, when that's high, then that's a bad thing. And we also know that the HDL is protective against heart disease. So we want the HDL cholesterol level to be higher. So, for example, someone might be on a standard low-fat diet and may have a triglyceride level that is slightly raised they might reduce their carbohydrate intake and dramatically reduce their triglyceride level at the same time incorporating natural healthy fats like extra virgin olive oil full-fat milk and dairy eggs coconut oil grass-fed butter By incorporating those natural fats in the diet, that can increase the HDL level. So I've seen people quadruple their triglyceride to HDL ratio. So that is now a ratio that will really, really encourage patients to monitor themselves. And all they have to do is take their triglyceride level and divide it by their HDL cholesterol level.
0: Yeah, that's super easy and something that all of us can do just with the numbers that we're given from our traditional doctors. So I think that's great. And so I know that your recommendation would be, okay, let's go on a high-fat, low-carb diet to work on this ratio, to work on our cholesterol, but that's not what we're hearing from our Traditional doctors, and you explained it a little bit, but I kind of want to go into it further. How does increasing your fat intake and lowering your carb intake actually help this? Because it does also quite often we see a lowering in our triglyceride levels as well, correct?
1: Yes, totally. And so, you know, one of the great factors when people restrict their carbohydrate is that blood glucose levels stay more stable and insulin levels reduce which allows people to access their own fat stores. That's a real benefit there. I mean, fat is an absolutely essential nutrient. So when people eat more fat in their diet, they feel fuller for longer. They get healthier skin, healthier hair. And so, you know, a lot of the symptoms that people have experienced when they come to us, things like IBS, polycystic ovaries, A lot of these conditions, acne, are totally improved when people restrict the carbohydrate and increase their healthy fats.
0: It's just that easy. (laughs) It is. And yet, for some reason, there's so much resistance around it still within the medical world, which is so sad to see. But it is getting so much better almost daily. I feel like more and more doctors and dietitians and nutritionists are becoming open to it. So thank goodness. But this leads us into a really good topic and something I wanted to try to touch on. And so I'm glad we'll get a chance. This is something also that you did in your talk that I just know my listeners really want to know more about, and that is the different kinds of fat because we're eating more fat as keto ladies, but it's also important to kind of know what types of fat you're getting and why and what they're doing in your body. So we don't just, fat isn't just fat. There's many different components to it, which are the fatty acids. So can we talk about these different forms of fat and which are good and, and we want a lot of and which are bad and we don't want any of and which are kind of like moderate amount of fat? Topics. Oh yeah, okay. absolutely. I mean, we, we to keep things simple. We
1: split them into six sections. So we talk about the trans fats and the trans fats are artificial fats. So they are formed when the manufacturers that have passed hydrogen through vegetable oils to try and harden the vegetable oils. So when they started to demonize the saturated fat, then the manufacturers were trying to produce products with vegetable oils, but using liquid fats don't bring about the same consistency in the baking and the baked goods. So they tried to harden the vegetable oils to make them better to cook with and this by passing hydrogen into vegetable oils. But we now know that these form the trans fats, which are so very, very bad for us. So the trans fats, artificial fats and they are found in in processed foods and margarines and i think now there's a good understanding how negative they are for our health and so processed foods contain a mixture of the trans fats but also another type of fat called the omega-6 fatty acids the omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. And so a lot of people still believe that the vegetable oils, like the corn oil, the sunflower oil, the, we call it rapeseed oil in in the UK, you call it canola oil, is that right? These are really, really high in what we call the omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. Now, these fats are not stable. So they're more easily mixed with the oxygen in the air and become oxidized and rancid, which can cause inflammation in our body, and they're pro-inflammatory, so they actually kind of encourage inflammation in the body. A very, very small amount of these omega-6 polyunsaturated fats are essential to health. When we say essential nutrients, these are nutrients that we can't make in our body, so we need to eat them. But the amount is very, very small, and if we have some seeds or some nuts we will get all the essential omega-6 polyunsaturated fat that we need. So one of our real recommendations is for people to completely omit the vegetable oils from their diet. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. other form of the polyunsaturated fat is what we call the omega-3 Now, these are still more likely to be oxidized, so we need to make sure that we don't apply too much heat to these fats. But we find the omega-3 mainly in the fish, the oily fish, like the salmon, the mackerel, the sardines. And these are really, really beneficial for us because rather than being pro-inflammatory like the omega 6 The omega-3 is anti-inflammatory. And we know that inflammation is a starting point to many conditions such as cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis. So driving down inflammation in the body is a good thing. And also we know that the omega-3 fatty acids reduce the level of triglycerides, these fats in our blood as well. So we really, really promote people getting the right balance. Before the agricultural revolution, people were having about one of the omega-3s to every one of the omega-6s. The ratio was one to one. Nowadays, in Westernized society, the ratio is about 16 of the omega-6 to one of the omega-3. So the balance has gone completely out of sync. So we recommend people to get the balance back down to no more than four of the omega-6 to one of the omega-3. So that's that. So we talked about the trans fats. We've talked about the omega-6, the omega-3. And another one is dietary cholesterol. Uh, For years, people have been really fearful of having foods that contain dietary cholesterol. And that would be the seafood or the eggs. But we know there are two things to discuss here. One is that if we eat more foods with dietary cholesterol, then our bodies just make less. So roughly speaking, the cholesterol in our blood, around 15 to 25 percent comes from our diet. And around 75 to 85 percent is made by the body. If people eat more cholesterol, then we just make less of it. As simple as that. So, in the UK, there's no longer guidance around dietary cholesterol. And I believe recently the guidance has been updated and there's no longer the emphasis on reducing dietary cholesterol in the States. Right. Yeah. So, that's a good, you know, we're going through a transition period at the moment. And that is a real good step forward. So, we have two fats left to discuss. One is saturated fat. And one is monounsaturated fat. So saturated, these, kind of, these foods, these fats are often found together in what we call real foods. And when we talk about real foods, we mean foods that are in their natural state. So when we talk about full fat milk and dairy, that's a combination of the saturated fat and the monounsaturated fat. When we talk about meat, which then, again, it's about 50% saturated fat and about 50% monounsaturated fat. So saturated fat is found in a lot of natural foods. And the myth, and the governments often say, well, cut processed food and you reduce your saturated fat intake. But like I've already said, processed food tends to be a combination of trans fats and vegetable oils, Mm -hmm. not saturated fat. So when we're eating foods in their natural state, like full-fat milk and dairy, then we are getting saturated fat. And even though saturated fat in some individuals can increase blood cholesterol levels, we know that's not a concern because it's not the blood cholesterol which causes heart disease. It's the transporters when they get oxidised. So we don't need to worry about having trans fatty acids, so we don't need to worry about having the saturated fat in our diet as long as we're eating it in unprocessed foods that we're cooking ourselves at home. So the final fat is the monounsaturated fat. In the main, we find that in the extra virgin olive oil. And that also can be anti-inflammatory and very, very good for our bodies.
0: So is that a good brief overview on the different types of fats in the diet? So good. And I think the biggest take home is that when you're eating real food, nature does this for us. Nature kind of takes care of knowing what fats we need at what ratios on its own. And so, as long as you're eating real food, then we don't really have to worry that much about it. It's just, you know, we're getting the right amounts just by doing that. It's when we get, and this is what you mentioned, how the ratio is so off. And it's just because of the addition of processed foods in our world, in our culture.
1: Yes, people, when they're eating, you know, real food, they don't have a problem in regulating their appetite because they get that kind of feeling of fullness. Whereas, you know, there's something in the processed food that just makes people want to continue eating. And so people often say, you know, when they change their diet, they often say, I no longer feel hungry. I can cut the frequency in which I eat. So the intermittent fasting tends to go hand in hand with, you know, adopting a carbohydrate restricted real food diet.
0: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I one last question. And then we'll wrap up here. But I'm just curious, and maybe our listeners probably are curious, what does a day look like for you as far as your food goes? Do you intermittent fast? Do you eat keto mainly? What does it look like for you?
1: Yeah, I've been keto for four years now. I find it so, so easy. And okay. um, on police report, I've not even put a pound on over the festive period. And my standard is I never have breakfast. I'm just one of these people. I get up in the morning, I never feel hungry. I fast until noon every day. Uh, I have one or two meals per day. Um, around 12 noon, I might start feeling a little peckish and you know, I may choose to eat something or if not, I'll just have coffee with cream, double cream. I think you call it heavy cream. Mm-hmm. And because I have a real busy day. And so it's a quality of life improvement for me, not to have to eat sometimes. Yes. And so I might have coffee with heavy cream. And then when it gets to the evening, I can then take time out, cook a real nutritious meal and enjoy it. Sit down and relax and enjoy the meal Whereas before, four years ago, when I wasn't keto, I was hungry all the time. You know, I travel a lot and it's inconvenient to feel hungry all the time. I'm also pretty expensive. Now, that's really funny as well, because a lot of people say that when you eat real foods and you eat keto, then it's expensive. But I'm actually finding I'm saving money because I don't eat as frequently and I don't snack. Then I can afford to spend more money on the meal when I do eat it, but um, save money the rest of the week. So it's just for me, it's a way of life. And my health as a result has improved tremendously.
0: Oh, I love it. That's actually such a good point that you brought up about the cost savings, because that is a huge kind of hurdle that people have to get over when they're trying to eat keto. And y- when you're getting good, high quality fats and good, high quality meats, it is expensive, but you're eating so much less. Like if you're just yeah. skipping a meal, why the cost savings? So then you can put that money towards making sure you're getting the highest quality fats and meats, which is so important. That was such a great talk. And you're just so good at explaining things So easily for people. I love it so much. This is going to be great for our listeners. Can you tell people a little bit more about where they can find you and if there is any of the resources available to them? Yes, yes. So we have a website.
1: So we're a registered charity and we have a website which is Expert Health and that is XP, we have no E on the expert, Um, so it's X-P-E-R-T health so h e a l t h dot uk and if people visit the website they can see all our educational programs they can see our resources we have blogs where we talk about different research and you know recent blogs have been you know talking about salt and is breakfast the most important meal of the day well I think you know my answer to that <laughs> and so you know there's the research tab there's the program tab there's the online shop we have starting perform very soon as well we're just launching our weight program so if people visit the website there's a whole load of materials and reading that they can do to learn more about the educational activities that we deliver
0: Oh, I love it. And like I mentioned, I have one of the handbooks and it is so well done. It's such a great resource. And I think a lot of our listeners, maybe they're kind of already deep into this keto lifestyle, but their friends and family aren't and they need help. And that kind of resource is so great for these people to truly understand what's going on with their bodies and how they can actually improve their health. And so having that resource and having a place where we can send people that want to learn more about what they're currently being diagnosed with. It's so great. So Trudy, thank you so, so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to educate all of us. Okay. Thank you very much for inviting me. Talk soon. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoy your time with Trudy Deacon. And hopefully she answered a bunch of questions you had, which I have a feeling she did. Before we move on to what's coming to Keto for Women in the next few weeks, a quick reminder to check out this episode's sponsor, Health IQ, the company that brings life insurance savings to the health conscious. Head to healthiq.com keto to take your lifestyle quiz and see if you qualify for a lower rate. That's healthiq.com keto. Remember, next week, we are talking digestion. I'm going to call it keto and poop because I think that's just way more accurate and kind of catchy, we'll say. But yeah, we're looking at your digestion and we'll kind of go through what digestion looks like when it's working well and what it looks like when it's not working well and what could be going on and how we can use keto to help with that. And also how keto may affect your digestion too. So some of the symptoms you may experience when you go keto that weren't happening before, you can hopefully figure out and get some tips on how to get your bowel movements back to normal. That will be next week. And then the week after I might actually do, let me know what you guys think about this. I might actually do a hot seat, like a keto hot seat, where I ask questions on social media, don't even look at them. Don't prepare before. Just ask you for our questions and then I will answer them. I'll be in the hot seat answering them as quickly as I can. We might do that. We'll see. See if I can get that coordinated. Anyway, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye bye.